0: Welcome to the Webby Podcast, where we share the stories of the internet in more than five-word speeches. Thank God Conan got promoted.
1: I now have a Webby! To quote my favorite song. You ain't seen nothing yet.
0: Here's your host, David Michelle Davies. I've had the great fortune to work on The Webbies since 1999. And the big reason I'm still doing it today is because I really love the Internet. I love what it's done to our world, and I love the opportunity we get to celebrate that each year. But here at The Webby's, we also get the chance to learn all the behind-the-scenes stories of how the Internet gets made from the people who are really making it. And that's what this Webby podcast is about, an opportunity for us here at The Webby's to share the nitty-gritty, fascinating, often untold stories of the best of the Internet. One of the reasons I'm so excited about this is because, as you may know, Webby winners are only allowed to give a five-word speech when they accept their award. Uh, I'll probably never forget when we honored Prince and his speech was, Everything you think is true. Honestly, I'm still thinking about that one. Then there's also the funny ones. A lot of funny ones, actually. Like when Skype won, they said, Skyped your mom last night, which was odd and awesome. And then sometimes there is even the super inspiring optimistic ones, like when we recognized internet inventor Vint Cerf and he said, the best is yet to come. But the part that's missing in the five-word speeches is like, what does Vint Cerf actually think is the best that's yet to come? Those are the kind of questions we want to answer here on the Webby podcast. So to kick things off, and how's this for a segue, there's no better place to start than at the beginning. And I mean literally the beginning. So for our first pilot episode zero, we sat down with, wait for it, the co-inventor of the internet, Vint Cerf. Pretty great, right? We were pumped. He and Bob Kahn co-designed the TCPIP protocols, which is the basic architecture of the internet and what makes it work. Vint is also now the chief internet evangelist at Google. A quick note, we go pretty deep and pretty geeky with Vint. I doubt in future episodes we'll be talking quite as much about ARPANET. We also talk a bunch at the end about where this is all going and what Vint thinks is actually next. And then one more thing, this was our first recording at the newly invented Webby Studio, which is basically in our office, so we're still getting our sound legs under us a bit. We get better at all that stuff when we get to episode one. right, on to my conversation with internet co-inventor, Vint Cerf. Was there something in your early life that really propelled you into computer programming?
1: Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on the show. Uh, I'm not sure that there is a particular event, but I can recall a couple of things that uh, I could consider triggering events. One of them was uh, fifth grade. I got bored with the arithmetic of the fifth grade and complained to the teacher who, uh, uh, who said, oh, there's more to this, and handed me a seventh grade algebra book which I worked on for the summer, every single problem in the book. I loved it, especially the word problems, because it was like an Agatha Christie novel. You had to figure out what was X. So I really enjoyed mathematics. And then around the same time, I got a chemistry set from the Gilbert Company. And back in the 50s, you got chemicals in the set that you probably would not get today, powdered magnesium, potassium permanganate, when... Uh, Mixed with glycerin is hypergolic, that is to say, it burns uh, automatically. It doesn't explode, just burns. <clears throat> so I'm 10 years old at the time, and uh, uh, with my uh, next-door neighbor or across-the-street neighbor, we made nitroglycerin, which was pretty stupid. <laughs> and fortunately, we didn't blow ourselves or anything yeah. else up so i got very interested in science and in mathematics and i read scientific american i probably didn't understand a great deal of it but i enjoyed reading it and anyway and where were you in what part of the united states did i was up? in the san fernando valley in north hollywood and then van nuys which okay. is where i grew up uh, so this was not a bad place to be uh, in right, terms of already compute,
0: close to uh close to some of the thinking that was even just starting then i guess well, geographically
1: Uh, Yes, although I think what's more important is that uh, my father worked at a company called North American Aviation, it's now called Rockwell International, and he happened to work at a company called Rocketdyne, and Rocketdyne was responsible for making the F-1 engines of the Apollo program. These are 1.5 million pound thrust engines. And uh, by the time I was uh, 17, 18, I guess, uh, in 1961, I got to work at Rocketdyne. I was writing software to evaluate the test runs with the one and a half half million pound thrust engines. Uh, They would run them in a test jig up in the Santa Susana Mountains. My my job was to take the data and figure out whether or not this thing would stay together until it ran out of fuel. We didn't care after that. Uh, But uh, the whole idea was to make sure that this uh, rocket and the four others that were part of the Saturn V configuration uh, would actually survive all the way to what the Germans call Brennschluss which is end of burning. How,
0: so how I mean that's at, at the age of 18 that's that, a, that's a that's a very advanced job most of us I think we're probably working at Taco Bell. <laughs> How did you how did you get so into that
1: and well, were good enough I, to do that at Well that First of all, since my father worked there uh, as a, uh, an employee, son of an employee, I was allowed to uh, apply for internships, Okay, and so uh, I actually ended up with a real job, though. It wasn't even an internship, because I had graduated from high school at that point. I had six months to work in 61 from February until September, before I went up to Stanford to, uh, to take a mathematics degree. So, I had six months of real work, and you can imagine how thrilling this was. I thought, you know, that that 20 years later, which was double my then lifetime, that we would be flying these things, you know, once every week or two, you know, to the moon and elsewhere. Of course, 20 years later, uh, it's uh, 1981, and we weren't doing that, and there weren't any flying cars either, which was also disappointing. Uh, But at the time, it was very exciting. I was an avid science fiction reader, and it felt like I was in on the beginnings of the things I was reading in those science fiction books. And you were, in a way. In a way, yes. Yeah. So you were you were a geek
0: in a very, very <laughs> geeky way at the earliest of ages. It's uh, not like you stumbled into this
1: uh, later on. This no, is something
0: you were always very passionate about.
1: I was the complete geek. In high school, I wore a sports coat tie and slacks when I wasn't wearing a military uniform because I was in the junior ROTC program. So, yep, I even carried a briefcase. That you talk about geeky in high school. Um, yeah, that was me. And so when you, um, you went to Stanford, correct? Uh, and so now
0: we're getting into the 60s, um, tell me a little bit about like, what was the, what did people think of computer science then? Like, how did it fit into what was generally happening on the Stanford campus at that time or starting to happen, I would imagine?
1: Well, we were very fortunate at Stanford to have a computer science program that started very early. It started out as numerical computing, numerical analysis. But uh, coming to Stanford very early in the 60s was John McCarthy, who had developed uh, time sharing at MIT on a PDP-1. And he uh, acquired a PDP-1 at Stanford. Uh, by the time I got there in September of 61, we also had the Burroughs equipment available. Uh, the programming courses uh, were pretty sophisticated, and uh, so it was a hot topic uh, on the Stanford campus at that time, as it was also uh, at MIT, for example, and Carnegie Mellon, and some of the other universities that you associate with uh, advanced computer science work. And tell, for people who don't
0: know, can you explain kind of what time-sharing, what what that meant and why that was important at that time?
1: It's very funny in a way, because that's what everyone is doing when they get access to the internet. They're talking to machines that are essentially serving multiple people at the same time. That's what time-sharing was about. The idea of using a machine to serve more than one person at a time was fairly new in the 1960s. Uh, the idea in the before that was batch processing, where you show up, you hand your program in, the computer runs the program, then it takes the next one. It was a serial process. Uh, and so what McCarthy and his colleagues at MIT thought was, why don't we find a way? And the machine was faster than people anyway. Why can't we have it work a little bit on, on your problem, then somebody else's problem, then somebody else's, then get back to you? And it would do so in you know rapid rotation, so it felt like you had the machine to yourself. So that was the essence of time sharing, and of course it has it blossomed. Uh, in the uh, subsequent decades, and now you hear about cloud computing, which is massive quantities of computers serving massive numbers of people all at the same time through the Internet. Same basic concept at the end of the day. Same idea. Uh, The the Internet itself, of course, was distinct from timesharing, but at the point where even the predecessor network, the ARPANET project, which was started in 1969, Uh, premised in part on having machines on the network that would serve multiple people
0: concurrently. And so, you, you know, you're sort of at the end of the 60s here, you're at UCLA, you're doing this very heady work. There's all this other stuff going on in the world at that time. Like I mean, it's a it's a very I don't want to say tumultuous. But it's a, but it's a big time. No, no, tumultuous is not I mean, a bad word. Political upheaval, yes. people really um, thinking new idea. Like, how did you the work that you were doing in computer science? Were you did that? Did you think about that? Was it was your sort of what you were doing? Um, did you think about how it was fitting into all the other types of changes going on?
1: No, no, yeah. <laughs> we were so focused on getting the system up and running. Yeah. And there was something beguiling about being able to do something in Los Angeles and have an effect on something in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or eventually some other part of the world like the UK in London. And so it was just mesmerizing. We just focused on that. I paid almost no attention to the Vietnam situation and the protests and everything else. Stanford Research Institute did experience some side effects because students complained that Stanford was engaged in military research during the time of the Vietnam War and the protests. And so um, what had been called Stanford Research Institute became SRI International and was separated officially from Stanford during that time frame. But honestly, I ignored the whole thing. I was just completely mesmerized by working on the ARPANET and the protocols and the applications on top of that. So you get married, you're working at UCLA, uh, you're
0: working on ARPANET. There's right. all this other stuff going on. Right. But eventually, uh, a I few finish. years later, you start working with... you were already working with Bob Kahn. And eventually, a few years later, you work with Bob and design sort of like the thing that everybody talks about, the TCPIP. Is that right? About, that, right?
1: That's correct. Although there's a little uh, step in, in between. I finished my dissertation in March of 72. Bob Kahn was at Bolt, Barton, and Newman was asked by Larry Roberts, who led the ARPANET project, to do a public demonstration of the ARPANET in Washington DC in October of 72. So roughly for that six-month period, Bob and I and many others, names you know like Bob Metcalf who invented the Ethernet, were part of this uh, planning uh, and demonstration, of public demonstration of packet switching in the form of ARPANET uh, at the Washington Hilton Hotel. And uh, what was important about the October date is that we met the date, we did the demos, Bob then left Bolt, Baranek, and Newman to join ARPA. And I left UCLA to join the faculty at Stanford University. So by the spring of 73, Bob is already well on the way of looking at uh, sort of open networking concepts. And, uh, and I'm at Stanford, you know, starting to do research on, uh, it, continued research on networking. So Bob shows up in the spring of 73 and he says, we have a problem. And my reaction is, what do you mean we? And he said, well, you know, we're looking at this command and control concept. But that means computers have to be in airplanes and ships at sea and mobile vehicles as well as fixed installations. The ARPANET had only satisfied the fixed installation case. So Bob was already working on a packet satellite program where multiple ground stations share the packet satellite channel and mobile radio. And so we sit down trying to figure out how to make a network uh, that would link together these different kinds of packet switch nets running independently of each other. But we solved the problem in about six months conceptually, wrote a paper which was published in uh, May of 1974, and uh, at the beginning of 74, my team at Stanford began to do detailed specifications for TCP we completed that details back in december of 74 and began implementation in january of 75 so so the uh, early history uh, took some time uh, but it was i think one of the most solid designs uh, imaginable given that it has scaled up by a factor of over a million in every dimension over the past 40 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it sort of speaks for itself on the, in, in that way, right? Um, but, and one of the things it did, though, is it actually, it united all these other networks. It basically yeah. pre- create, created frameworks so that all, because there was other competing networks, right, in addition to... Yeah, oh, absolutely. Right? You guys uh, did the ARPANET, and then everybody saw that, and then everybody else started making their own
1: networks. Packet right? switch networks. So our job was to find an alternative uh, computer networking architecture and protocol that was non-proprietary and would lo- allow anyone who wished to to connect any brand of computer up w- with any packet switch network of any kind, as long as they met certain simple criteria, and make the un- ensemble look like it was uniform. So that was the internet right. problem, and right. that's what we saw.
0: Right, and so then anybody could hook up their network to Correct. it. Correct. Um, and, and you didn't license the tech. It's not like you guys it's a made a very... property thing and then sold it to people. You made it available to everybody, right?
1: We actually thought our way through that. Originally, we asked ourselves, should we patent this? And, and we concluded no for several reasons. The first one was that we knew that if the Defense Department used this technology, that uh, it would need to share it somehow with its allies so everybody could interwork. And then we started to think, well, who are our allies going to be 25 years from now? And we realized that if you went back 25 years, you get a different answer than you got in 73, which would be different from 1996 or in 98. So we said, we just have to release it everywhere. And if anyone wishes to build a piece of this internet thing and find somebody to connect to, it should work. And so this was our organic theory of internet growth. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what happened. Right. And
0: I mean, it's really, it deserves like restating that the, the the actual infrastructure of it being open is such a huge driver of so, why it scaled, it's scaled, right? And there's a philosophical reason that it worked in, in addition to just a technical one.
1: Uh, well, the scaling, part, the scaling part was clearly part of the basic design. The uh, the strategy of releasing it freely without any constraints uh, was, uh, as I say, partly uh, a practical decision. Because this was all widely available for free, uh, everything interworked.
0: worked. Do you think that, I mean, there's something inherent, inherent about... Uh,
1: For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we
0: founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Computer science there, right? And we still see it today, maybe not as generous as it has been in the past, but we still see a, a world, and especially in computer culture, that's that's pushed by open source and by sharing and people building upon other things. Um, is there something about computer science that makes it that way or is, is there some part of the culture that's sort of inherent to that, that, that promotes that type it, of thinking?
1: I'm not sure that it's computer science that does this, although certainly in the academic world, uh, the way we get information is we don't buy information from each other, we trade information with each other. So that's the coin of the realm is, is knowledge. Uh, on the other hand, open source uh, absolutely reflects uh, a belief that sharing of that uh, code is the fastest way to fix the bugs and to accelerate new developments. And so, Google, for example, where I now work, uh, is a big fan of open source. We, we give away the Android operating system, the Chrome operating system, the Chrome browser, and now more recently, our artificial intelligence capability and TensorFlow. And so, that's part of the academic community. And since the academics are the ones who designed and built the Internet, uh, their philosophies penetrated mm-hmm. a lot of that design that so, has emerged. Take me
0: further uh, further along. Eventually, you left academia. You went to work at MCI. Correct. Um, You did a lot of work at MCI. One of the big things you did there uh, was sort of pioneer the first public email system. Well, it
1: wasn't the first public email system. It was one of many commercial email systems, but it had the interesting property that it was designed to interconnect with other email systems. Ah, okay. Carefully structured to allow that to happen. And also, (laughs) yeah, and also to Telex, which I hated with a passion, but it was an important communications technology of the time, Uh, and also print. So we had email that you could send to a postal address, and if we detected a postal address, we printed it out, put it in an envelope, and (laughs) mailed it. So if you had a lot of correspondents who weren't online yet, you could still Still communicate with them by paper. Uh, So what's important about the MCI Mail Project is that some years later, in 1988, after I left MCI and joined Bob Connigan at the Corporation for National Research Initiatives, uh, I realized around 88 that um, the internet, as it then existed, did not allow commercial traffic to run on the government-sponsored backbones, of which there were four. So I asked for permission to hook up the MCI mail system to the internet, uh, and the permission requested of the Federal Networking Council, which oversaw rules for the use of the government internet. And they said, yes, I was allowed to do that. So in the summer of 1979 or 1989, um, my colleagues and I at CNRI announced that we had this connection to the MCI mail system. All the other commercial email providers of the time who had been disconnected from each other, they were isolated, said, Well, you know, we want to have access to the internet too. So they all got hooked up to the net. So on time and, time and telemail, and uh, uh, what did I leave out? CompuServe, Prodigy, maybe. Um, all got hooked up. Then they discovered that because they were connected to the Internet, their users could talk to each other through the net. And so suddenly the isolation went away. That was a big shock for all of the commercial email providers who used to charge for email. Now it's a little hard to do that right. a free service from other ISPs. But that was a very important transformation. Uh, we got legal permission ultimately mean, broadly in 1992 And that gives me an opportunity to say that then Vice President Al Gore had a lot to do with the commercialization of the Internet and also with its initiation because in 1986 when he was still a senator, he had a hearing at which Bob Kahn participated and introduced the term National Information Infrastructure and at the end of that hearing, Senator Gore said, should we connect the NSF supercomputers together on an optical fiber network? He's asking this question in the fall of 1986. Yeah. First first person elected official to even think about that. So we went away and came back. Gordon Bell was running the computer and information systems and engineering group of the National Science Foundation. February of 87, we go out to San Diego because it's warmer there than it is in Washington. And we come back with a national research and education network plan which launches the NSF net. And so Al Gore gets credit in my book yeah. for initiating that activity, for supporting commercialization. Um, and he, he did not say in 2000 that he invented the Internet. That's
0: just a canard. No, no, we've had, we've together had a chance to recognize him at the Webby's for his conversation. Yes, we did. And I was very pleased at that. Yeah, and, and I remember, I think it was Scientific American. I mean, I got a, there was a science magazine that I got in, the early 90s that he was was
1: 1991 yeah i wrote i wrote that article called networks Networks. that's right
0: um and you know i think the 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 coining of information superhighway and all that sort of fell out of of
1: those articles yes it did
0: but so at this point this is interesting to me is that um you went from this highly academic environment and now you're getting more into this commercial and also policy driven part right where you're not just Working in the lab and doing everything you can to get it launched, but you are now thinking about how the rest of the world is going to use it. You're working with politicians to get it out there. It's really a, a it's a shift in a, in a way. Um, do you is do you love that part of it now? Because you do do a lot of that at Google, right?
1: Well, I, yes, I do. I've been in Washington for 40 years. Yeah, now. I moved there in '76. My favorite briar patch is the place where technology and policy collide. That's where I like to be. And yeah. I enjoy that very much. Um, I'm officially part of the research department at Google, so I get exposure to a lot of interesting things that we do in that space. But at the same time, I'm very closely connected with and have an office in Washington, D.C. Proper to deal with policy problems. So, how, how
0: do you think we're doing now? If you take a step back and you look at where it's where where you started and where it's where it's gone.
1: to? Uh, well, first of all, I, I, in talking to Eric Schmidt, who's our executive chairman, he said you can't retire. I said why not? He said you're only half done. Only half the world is online. You have another fifty you percent know, of the population to go, and he's he's right about that. Um, I think that we have made good progress. Uh, We're seeing more and higher speed internet becoming available. Uh, The amazing connection of smartphones to the internet reinforces the value of both. The smartphone gets access to all the content in the net, and the smartphone makes the internet accessible where it wasn't before. Uh, And we're seeing an increasing amount of uh, internet infrastructure development in the the, uh, emerging economies of the world. We still have a lot of work to to do to make policies in those national uh, environments friendly to investment in the infrastructure and the creation of new internet service. At the same time, we're seeing this rapid evolution of new applications showing up, partly thanks to Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, uh, on whose uh, work the whole Webby Awards program was founded. Uh, That has been a gigantic platform on top of which many, many new applications have been started. Uh, so we're seeing a continued um, uh, rapid evolution of new capabilities in yeah. the net. At the same time that this thing is penetrating deeply into our daily lives, it's also creating a great deal of uh, concern in national governments, in some cases because there's harm that's done on the net. People distribute malware, they do denial of service attacks. they. Uh, penetrate into computers and steal identity and uh, do a bunch of other harmful things. And, naturally, governments think we should do something about that, and, and they're right. Sometimes there are technical responses you can make, and sometimes it's policy response. So we have that problem. We also have the problem that the authoritarian governments don't like the Internet because of the freedom of expression that it supports. And so they'd like to suppress that. And so we have another uh, the problem in the internet space, which is governments trying to shut the internet down or control it in some way and and, uh, inhibit people's access to what they either want to say or want to find out. China and Russia being two uh, very good examples of that. You'll find others uh, in the rest of the world are equally determined to shut the internet, uh, to constrain access to the internet. So we're in a a period of tension.
0: What do you think about, how are you looking at security these days? I mean, there's the recent you sort of mentioned the DDoS attacks. There was a recent one that was done primarily through attacking really communication sites, Twitter and things like that. And it was right. done in large part through Internet of Things devices. Well, yes.
1: So um, as you, you, now that you've mentioned Internet yeah. of Things, of course, a it's topic, a topic I am very deeply involved yes, in I know. at Google or now at Alphabet. Um, so first of all, I'm very, very concerned about security, safety, and privacy. The Internet of Things adds to my concern, and the best evidence of that is the uh, attack of the webcams against Dyne. And if you think about it for a minute, a webcam will produce a megabit per second stream. There are estimated to be a half a million of those webcams in the botnet called Mirai, which was used to, uh, first to target uh, Krebs' uh, blog and then now to target Dyne. Uh, And the reason that that's feasible is not that anybody was terribly sophisticated about hacking a webcam. The problem is the webcams had well-known usernames and passwords for access or or none at all. And so they were easily formed into a botnet. We have to fix that. The people who make IoT devices, including my own company, have got to be attentive to strong authentication and the ability to resist this kind of penetration. Um, to uh, resist control by any but authorized parties and to refuse to give any information to any but authorized parties. So configuring and designing these systems is a really important thing. Do you think, I mean, if you look at even
0: some of the Wikileaks stuff in, you know, emails stolen from the DNC or from John Podesta or whatever, uh, it's reported. It's not as if those were incredibly sophisticated hacks. Uh, in some cases, it's reported they were just really standard phishing. Somebody send a uh, fake email and get somebody to log in, like stuff that people deal with at companies all the time. Yeah, just the information less
1: sensitive. That's per- precisely correct. The phishing attacks have gotten very sophisticated. They're very targeted. Uh, a, an email looks like it came from the CEO saying, you know, please check this. Uh, spreadsheet your salary yeah. information is there you pop up the spreadsheet and uh... It generates a virus that gets downloaded you now have uh, a, a backdoor into somebody's computer. You can use a keylogger to look at their yeah. uh, passwords and things like that. But so, the ultimate breach is more of a in a way more of a human breach than a it's not a well. Extremely I extremely technical breach, right? Uh, well, I think I would be a little careful about yeah. that assertion. In terms of the initial attack, absolutely correct. It yeah. plays on people's uh, inability to to be suspicious about certain messages, which we we should teach people, yeah, safe networking, which is don't click on stuff you don't understand or you know that comes from a source that you're not sure about. Uh, but once you uh, you manage to get a piece of malware lodged into somebody's computer, now it's a somewhat more sophisticated sure. attack, uh key loggers and things of that sort. Uh, or Trojan horses that last for a long time. So there's a mix there. But the initial trigger, you're absolutely right, is not very sophisticated. Do you think? I mean, do you think that we just are not doing a
0: good enough job at making people understand how? Because even the you were sort of mentioning the devices. I think that some of those devices basically just came with passwords and things that weren't tremendous,
1: weren't tremendous this, difficult, never the, got reset. It's very basic well, things. It's right? it's all about ease of uh, of uh, configuration. For example, yeah. you buy the thing, you take it out of the box, you plug it in. You connect to it uh, on, uh, you know, 1.1.1.1 or something uh, in order to uh, to uh, configure the thing. The problem is everybody knows that because that's what you say in the documentation. It's right. a bad idea. Right. We need to build systems that are a lot more clever. Uh, we also need to um, get people comfortable with two-factor authentication, which is what we use at Google in, um, as a requirement no one gets access to yeah. any of their stuff without a second factor. yeah we we do that here we hate it but we do it uh, it's important <laughs> we'll try we'll, we're looking for ways to make that easier yeah but the whole point is that you don't want to be compromised just because you picked a bad password yeah um i'll wrap up i want to
0: ask you one last question uh, you know i part of the reason i do this job and we do this job at the webbies and have done it so for so done it for so long is at the end of the day we really think and i really think that giving people this incredible way to communicate, giving them a platform where they're more connected than ever, just, you know, it it yields incredible, incredible things. And I'm a big believer in that and always want to support that. And it's really like the impetus of what we're doing is really trying to recognize all the best ways that that connection has been applied, if you will. Um, You've watched how what you've done has really shaped humanity and people. Like, how are you seeing the effect of it You know, in the next 20 or 30 years, like all the way down to our humanity, are we becoming more connected and, uh, you know,
1: more tolerant? And do you, which way is all of that bending? Well, connected, yes. Tolerant, not so clear. I mean, the last election here in the United States suggests that uh, we have uh, different universes that we live in, uh, bubbles that we live in. And I think a lot of people had didn't recognize that there was more than one bubble. This is sort of like the multi-universe theory. Uh, So I'm concerned about this. Uh, At the same time that we're able to connect to each other and discover uh, common interests, we also may be uh, creating echo chambers in which people don't recognize that there's another point of view worthy of their attention. And so that's a hazard that we have to think our way through. This is not a technological problem. This is a sociological problem. And the technology will allow us either to uh, bridge that gap, if we're willing, if we say, I want to see what the other side thinks, or it reinforces this isolation. And so this now is no longer just a technical problem, it's a sociological one. And it's one that we have to pay attention to. If we want to take advantage of the thing which the internet and the web have, have produced, which is instant access to the world's knowledge, something we care a great deal about at Google. then we really have to focus on how to make this a most positive and safe environment for people to contribute to and to use. And that's a tough job and it's one that I look forward to working on.
0: Ben surf. thank you so much for joining us. Please don't retire. <laughs> and uh, on behalf of all the internet people out there that you've helped throughout the years, thank you so much. Thank you. Big thank you to Vint Cerf. Not only did Vint co-invent the internet, but he's also one of the kindest and most generous people in the world. He has been a huge supporter of the Webby's for more than 20 years, and there are countless other internet people out there who have leaned on Vint at some point in their careers. From all of us, thanks, Vint. Our producer is Ben Wagner, and editorial help this week comes from Nicole Ferraro. Show music is Straight West by Casket Club. If you like what you're hearing here, be sure to subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review. Please help us share the best of the internet. We'll see you next week.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it.